This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, welcome to the show this week. We're going to be discussing how to find humility and change and how humility and change management and leadership is going to usher in a new era of innovation for clinical informatics. And our guest this week is Brittany Partridge. I've known Brittany for over 10 years. I've observed her ascension to become a national thought leader on health data management and informatics. Um, she's an industry leader in virtual care, technical architecture, and informatics implementations. She's currently res responsible for the technical infrastructure design and build that makes up the UC San Diego uh, Health virtual care portfolio. I mean, she's leading cross-functional teams to innovate and implement technology with the diverse need of clinical workflows and supporting patients remotely. And you're going to find she is someone that is absolutely passionate about implementing technology that impacts clinical workflow in a positive way and increases patients' access to care. And, you know, I learned so much from the conversation. I mean, she's so focused on innovative ways to meet goals of the triple aim and to maintain a robust and scalable technical infrastructure. She's out there public speaking. She's writing books. She was recently inducted as a fellow of the American Medical Informatics uh, Association. So much uh, that she's doing. Her new book was with Ed Marks, and she was a contributing author. And uh, definitely check out Ed's prior Race to Value episode. And that new book is Voices of Innovation. So let's Go ahead and hear about clinical informatics and value-based care and the future of technology adoption. Brittany Partridge is joining us this week on The Race to Value. Well, Brittany, welcome to The Race to Value. I am so excited to have you on the show this week. You're uh, joining us from San Diego, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And, you know, uh, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over the last decade, and I've really enjoyed watching your career flourish in that time. And you're someone that's just so deeply passionate about technology and especially in the clinical workflow space and, you know, how it could really create a positive impact on increasing patient access to care. And you're such an inspiration to me and as a leader in value-based care as well. And I wanted to spend our time today, just explore your work in virtual care and clinical informatics. So uh, thank you for joining us this week. Yeah, of course, Eric. I'm happy to be here. And I can't believe it's been 10 years. You were one of the very first mentors in healthcare for me that, um, was willing to talk to me about what all this was. So I'm appreciative to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, same here. And it's been a fun journey. And, you know, I've enjoyed staying in touch with you over these years. And uh, wow, you've had an amazing career in health informatics. And I thought that's that would be a good place for us to start our conversation today. I mean, this this concept of health informatics, it's, you know, somewhat confusing, you know, to a lot of people, you know, it's not well understood. Uh, you know, there's descriptions that, very significantly, even among those that are in the discipline itself, there's such a great diversity in these sub-disciplines in health informatics. I mean, we have informatics disciplines in professional domains such as nursing, pharmacy, public health, 
I mean, there's biomedical informatics, which identifies trends to improve healthcare problems and decision making. There's medical informatics, which is the collection and evaluation of medical knowledge and patient data to improve patient care. And then there's clinical informatics, which is your area of expertise. And that's where the you have the application of information technology to deliver healthcare services and improve care provided by those organizations. And as a clinical informaticist, you've found your true calling, as I understand, to really achieve that goal of having technology and clinical process work together in the most seamless way. So, Brittany, uh, as we start our conversation today, I just as, as a leader in the health informatics community, I'd, I'd love for you to walk us through your career journey, how you became a clinical informaticist. And I'd also be interested to hear your thoughts about this intersection of value-based care with clinical informatics. I mean, value-based care is all about the, you know, creating high quality, affordable, accessible, evidence-based care that's more equitable, improves outcomes. I mean, how can the industry better leverage clinical informatics to improve the value they provide to patients? Sure. So I appreciate that you told everyone how many different facets of informatics there are, because even in AMIA, which is the American Medical Informatics Association, which is kind of our professional home, um, there are just so many definitions out there. They actually have a page that says why informatics that allows everyone to kind of talk through what they think it is and what it applies to them. And I think you said it well with how clinical informatics is for me, but I would even break that down into I'm applied clinical informatics. So I'm out in the healthcare systems, doing the innovation and rollouts and having the tech directly impact our clinicians versus a lot of times that's talked about as research as well on a more theoretical basis. And so it is quite the uh, diverse and complex field, but I've really enjoyed working in it. So originally I was bringing up hospitals, training all of our new providers, um, anyone new to the system to designing the new implementations. I rolled out lots of different technology workflow implications. So one of my biggest projects at that point in my life was electronic prescribing. So I rolled that out for the network, making sure that I did it the clinical informatics way with um, workflow that fit well into what our clinicians needed. And then from there, I sort of pivoted and started focusing a lot more on virtual care and remote patient monitoring and ways to serve our patients when they weren't directly in front of us. Um, about three years ago, I ended up at UC San Diego. And here I, my title is no longer a clinical informaticist. I'm on the information services team, but I still feel that I am hundred percent a clinical informaticist and I still apply all of those tenants to any technical project that I do. You asked about how, how clinical informatics aligns with value-based care. And I think there's a couple of ways it does that. So the first one, or the first thing I just like to throw out is in my world, while we're really focused on workflow, a lot of clinical informatics is helping optimize acquisition, storage, retrieval, and use of information in healthcare workflows. So making sure those are available at the correct points and that they are entered in the correct way and they're validated. Um, and so for high quality care, CIs contribute in two ways. One, implementing technology that is usable and frictionless in a way that the clinicians will use it so that they'll be able to get that data that they need or the data is input correctly. And then when you have that data that's correct and it's on all the patients, then you can use it to make informed care decisions, um, having the data at the right time to treat the patient the best way. So I think that really helps with high quality care, but then keeping going along that path, a big part of high quality care is evidence-based care. And Clinical informaticists are very good at figuring out when um, BPA, so best practice advisory alerts, are going to help the clinicians make the best informed decision. So um, that's a place where informatics can definitely help is they can give the clinicians what they need at the point of care to be able to make the best decisions with all of the evidence and not having to remember it off the top of their heads all the time. And they're trained to work with the clinicians for validation, make sure the most recent evidence is in place, and then use the different data points throughout the system to make sure that those alerts fire to help the clinicians make those decisions. And then finally, access and affordability, and we can go into this more a little bit later too, but a lot of informatics is rolling out new technology, not just for 
the clinicians, but for patients as well. And so for things that we directly impact, like virtual care, where in San Diego, we have a huge county, the patients live pretty far out. If they're able to have a virtual appointment um, to get in earlier, just have a quick check-in, that increases access a lot. Having informaticists look at ways that they can leverage technology to optimize schedules so that patients can get in earlier with clinicians. And then also um, leveraging the status of big academic medical centers to be able to aid in smaller critical access hospitals. So for things like telestroke, where the patients might live far out, they might not have access to our big academic institution, but we can have our neurologists do telestroke consultations with the providers out there to make sure that the patients are getting the best care. And so I think those are just a couple of ways that informatics can really help with value-based care. Well, Brittany, you've had a great journey in clinical informatics so far. Uh, thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. And I'm also excited to talk to you about the new book that is out, Voices of Innovation, Fulfilling the Promise of Innovation in Healthcare, that features you as a contributing author alongside the main author and former Race to Value guest, Ed Marks. Ed is incredible. And, uh, you know, I'm real excited to read the book. And, you know, there was a a section in the book where you provided an important reflection on the importance of shadowing and workflow analysis as a catalyst for innovation. And you provided a specific example of a success story in clinical informatics early in your career where you were able to lead a resolution of an e-prescribing issue in one of your hospitals where they were running a 30% failure rate across the interface, and it was impacting the discharge prescriptions of hundreds of patients. In the book, you discussed the resolution that took place and how that taught you the importance of physically going to the floors to observe, not just talking to the users about the technology solution. And you also provided other examples as well that really reinforced the importance of shadowing and workflow analysis, like, you know, working with providers on current state documentation on pain scale overhaul or troubleshooting a telemedicine visit or implementing a process to streamline surgical scheduling and also uh, your work in implementing uh, telemedicine workflows. And, you know, I, I just thought this you know, as I was reading it, you know, we, I really want to understand this concept of shadowing and observing and why it's so important in applied clinical informatics, especially as more of our clinical technologies and interactions are taking place out of the traditional hospital setting into more of a hybrid environment. And, you know, data is coming from patients' homes and virtual care hubs. You know, can you share some key takeaways and lessons learned from your time shadowing and how important have soft skills such as collaboration and listening served you well in, in your career so far? Sure. So yes, shadowing and embedding are things that I, I feel like I preach a lot um, because they've been so helpful in my career. Luckily, like I mentioned, I was kind of shadowing everybody for two years when we were bringing all those hospitals from paper to electronic. So I was forced into that opportunity and I didn't realize it wasn't a common occurrence all the time with every CI or every health tech implementer out there. And so once I realized that I have come to be kind of an evangelist of shadowing and you hear about it often, you know, with like user validation, user design and like different disciplines outside of informatics and healthcare, or um, you'll hear it in lean about like going to the Gimba and it's, it's sort of similar and it's kind of got the same underlying principles. And so I wouldn't say that it's anything truly new, but I just like to really call out how important it can be. Um, the first one, and as I mentioned in, in the book, and yes, um, Ed is fantastic. I really enjoyed working with him. So I recommend everyone work with him. Um, I know he's writing a couple more books. So if they align with your specialty, definitely jump on and, and do a chapter. But the biggest thing for me, that's a key takeaway, is that often what people describe what they do is not the entire process or everything that they're doing. And you can miss key steps when you're trying to overlay technology on workflow if you just have someone describe their process. And I'm not saying that to put down clinicians, like they're trying to hide anything or anything. We all do it. Like if I were to ask you, you know, how do you schedule a meeting in Outlook? You'd probably give me two of the seven steps. Um, and then if I tried to design something on top of your workflow, we'd have missed four of the steps. And so 
going and watching users interact with the system really helps every step be documented. And as an informaticist, current state workflow is the hill that I will probably die on. Um, I think that everyone needs to get a robust current state workflow before you implement any innovation project um, because you need to know what you're going to be replacing. So you can have your start stop continue document and you can really make sure that you're not gonna miss a key piece of information that they're putting somewhere that no one knows about. And so for me, that's huge. And it's not just, you know, you see it in the physical space of there's like a sticky note that the RT puts on the nurse's station that is critical information that maybe doesn't get there um, any other way. But you wouldn't have known about that sticky note unless you went to the unit or also just interacting with something virtually. As you mentioned, as you move towards virtual care um, and more and more interaction with the computer, you can still kind of go to the Gimba or shadow on a provider screen if you need to, because a lot of times the same principles apply with what are they clicking on? Who are they typing to? Are they jumping around to different systems that you don't know about? Is the data going in different places that maybe isn't the most optimal? Um, so that's the biggest thing for me is just watching what is being done versus what is being said, because a lot of times you'll, you'll have missed a lot of steps. The next piece, and I just like to call this out because a lot of us have shouted before or embedded, but um, I have found that when you go there, it's really important to announce that you are not there to judge because everyone, you know, they see someone observing them. We get it with like, you know, Jayco even, right? We want to be like absolutely perfect and Jayco is judging, but um, we are not there to judge. We're just there to see the process, document it and make sure that we account for everything that is happening so that when we overlay new technology, we don't miss critical steps. Um, and I think kind of sharing that statement allows people to loosen up a lot because, um, for example, you mentioned with the surgical scheduling, I was going down and shadowing um, in the ORs to look at how cases were being picked. And I was talking to the techs and I hadn't quite made that statement yet. And they're like, well, we're supposed to do this. And I was like, no, 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 what? Not what you're supposed to do. What? do you do? Like, you're not going to get in trouble. I'm not tattling on you. Um, I just really want to make sure that we do it optimally for you guys in the future. And then the last piece that I just, I really think that shadowing and embedding, it really builds trust with your clinicians and your stakeholders. And I think that's one of the most important pieces of rolling out any technology project is that clinicians trust you to go to the technical teams with their best interests at heart and that you're going to take their concerns and their frustrations and try to help them work through it. And showing up to look at problems and talk through solutions has probably done more for my career than anything else um, because I have those relationships from just showing up. And I can call down to the unit when I have a question or I need someone to test or um, I need some input. and they're very willing to step in and give me those responses. Whereas I think if I just never went to visit anybody or if I never took the time to watch what they were doing, I wouldn't get that reception. Um, so I, I just recommend that everyone, no matter your level, especially if you're in technology, but no matter your role, um, take some time to go hang out on your units and in your different healthcare spaces. Well, Brittany, as we think about the application of these medical technologies and value-based care, I mean, it comes down to that quadruple aim of improving patient experience, having better patient and business outcomes, and improved experience with the clinicians, and also lowering healthcare costs. But with these medical technologies, uh, there's so many risks that are out there, and it's you know, and as these technologies proliferate and advance, I mean, it's just exploding in terms of the volume and complexity of those risks and those uh, healthcare stakeholders that are in the position to make these decisions and and uh, uh, move the organization towards innovation. They're often paralyzed uh, from you know making progress, and uh, you know. I, I wanted to engage you on this concept of, you know, uh, thinking about how industry leaders should overcome their fears with technology implementations to set the highest standards associated with the behaviors and results that keep the organization not just afloat, but ahead of all of the others. And 
as I understand, you found that allyship is really key to reducing medical technology risk because the inclusion of diverse perspectives yields the greatest uh, rewards. And this concept of allyship and leadership is really interesting to me. I mean, it's it isn't enough to assume that you're an effective ally simply because you have that uh, positional authority of leadership. We, we think about leading from the front, but that's kind of a cliche, uh, you know, in patient-centered care models that are emphasizing multidisciplinary team-based care delivery. I mean, there's this shared identity and purpose, and it requires enhanced communication and trust. So we have to start thinking about, you know, how do we lead from the back? You know, like to empower the people to move forward and and to be there to catch them. Or how do we lead from the side to let them know that you know we're an ally and you know we're there to serve them? So, you know, Brittany, I wanted to see if you could provide your perspective on the prevalence of medical technology risk and healthcare transformation and why allyship is such a critically important success factor to drive innovation. And in your experience as a servant leader, what have you learned from your experiences and how to recognize a solid ally in the health system setting? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's definitely a ton of risk in any um, medical technology implementation or innovation. And I think in, particularly in healthcare, it has a unique situation where, you know, in in non-healthcare tech and innovation, we often hear these euphemisms such as, you know, fail fast and iterate or perfect being the enemy of good enough. But um, in healthcare, this is impacting human lives. And so you do have to be extremely careful and you can't fail fast and be reckless because what you're implementing might negatively impact a human. And so I think the lens and the focus is even more on risk anytime you're implementing innovation in a healthcare system. Um, and then couple that along with all the high costs, time and political capital that go into a launch of any health technology, the risks are very great. And mitigating those risks obviously is very important to the healthcare system. But you're you were right in calling out that there are a lot of risks. Um, I think with allyship, and that is something that I've really been learning more recently in my career about how to use allies, how to be an ally, and how to leverage that. And there's different ways to look at allies. You know, you can look at them in, in your career and things like that, but specific to innovation and, and that's context. Um, I think the biggest thing is, as a leader, you should, at least, I mean, I'm saying you should, but I believe that you should never work alone and never in a bubble surrounded by yes people. I mean, we don't, none of us love to be told that we're wrong or that our idea doesn't make sense. Um, but if you surround yourself with people that are just going to agree with you, a lot of times you're not seeing your blind spots and you're not accounting for all the risk that is out there. Whereas if you have an ally that has a different focus or a different strength or relationships with other people in the system, then you might they are able to um, call out those blind spots and, and shine a flashlight into the dark where you might not be seeing something. And so that's why I think you should have a full team. And it doesn't have to be like someone specifically in your structure. I have a lot of allies across different health systems that can bounce ideas off of me. Um, I talk to them all the time and to think through how a different project might roll out or what am I not seeing and um, so I just look for traits and behaviors that are associated with things like listening, empathy, um, communication, and transparency. And then I look at those inside of myself as well. And I look at continuously improving and honing them because I think that open communication really helps mitigate the risks because if you have that strong trust with someone, uh, particularly in your system, um, and you know that you're going to share with them when there's something that maybe isn't going quite right, or you're headed towards a failure, and everyone is accepting of that transparency, communication, and open rather than, you know, shaming someone for doing something maybe that wasn't right. Whenever there's a fear of failure, that's when you get um, things that are rolled out that shouldn't be happening. That's when risk increases because people will try to hide things. And in technology, especially in healthcare, that's that's not a good situation. Um, so you asked, I think, about how to 
identify allies and um in I, I worked on a book chapter about this kind of area there's a diagram in there that talks through some different behaviors that are exemplified by desired allies and they, they're most of the things that I just talked through but the one thing that is most important to me is trust so if you're ethical and honest and you have integrity that I think is a great start for any ally because you can really move forward on anything as long as you have that trust. Well, hey, Britt, I wanted to engage you now on a hot topic right now, and that's the impact of generative AI in the field of clinical informatics. In this era that's marked by healthcare challenges such as, such as staffing shortages and data overload and workflow, workflow inefficiency and limited access to care, I mean, we need innovative solutions. I mean, the need has never been greater. And uh, everyone now is seeing this explosion of chat GPT, you know, and through that, you know, th there's a recognition of the opportunity for generative AI to offer transformation, not only in society, but also in the delivery of efficient and effective healthcare. I mean, if we're able to extract valuable insights from vast amounts of data, I mean, could have the potential to revolutionize healthcare delivery and the implications of generative AI and healthcare is vast, uh, but I wanted to get your thoughts on how you see it impacting clinicians in the years to come. You know, in the current scenario, we see how clinicians are struggling to make the most of available data in EHRs and other disparate systems due to its, its disconnected nature and volume. And it seems like generative AI could offer a solution in the form of, of advanced tools that could convert complex data into actionable insights through, you know, summaries and AI-based predictions and intuitive visualizations that could help providers make informed decisions efficiently and quickly. And moreover, I mean, I think if we're able to combine this predictive analytics capability with the data from other sources, such as the patient's medical record, then generative AI could even be even more accurate in providing robust clinical predictions so uh, these clinicians can intervene and prevent poor outcomes. So, you know, I wanted to see if you could provide your insights on the impact that uh, generative AI will have in the field of clinical informatics in the years to come, and what are some of the high-value target opportunities for it to empower clinicians to provide higher quality care in the future? Yeah, so I think you pretty much hear something new in the news every single day um, about generative AI. And I just want to take a step back really quick because I know you said your audience is very intelligent and knows all of the things, so I don't need to define anything. But I am going to just really quick define generative AI because this is something that in all of my conversations with um, clinicians, a lot of times we've had to kind of break it up between generative and predictive. And so just really quick. Um, so while so while a traditional AI is focused on detecting patterns, generating insight and automation and prediction, generative AI is like its name, where it generates new text, new images, and other media using generative mo models based on training sets. Um, so I just like to call that out because sometimes it's it helps to start with a, a foundation. Um, and then so on top of that, I think while I'm really excited about generative AI, and I think there are a lot of use cases, and I'll talk through those in just a second, I think one of the biggest challenges to adoption will be building trust and providing a level of transparency that clinicians can depend on those AI models. Um, so clinicians traditionally don't trust technology, and I think that's been a big role as the applied clinical informaticist historically is to make sure that those technical solutions fit their workflow. And that I don't believe that they're gonna just accept a black box model that we present to them. And so I think that's, you asked how it would impact clinical informatics. I think that's an area where informaticists can really step up is breaking down what's in the black box, what training data was used on a particular AI model, um, how the model is created, what um, biases the training set might have, how to report, back to the technical team if the clinicians feel like particular AI implementations are showing examples of bias or um, going down a path that maybe isn't the way they believe it to be. 
I think that's a really big opportunity for informaticists. And, you know, I don't like being the Debbie Downer and saying, oh, like there are these, all these concerns that are coming with generative AI, but I think every once in a while I have to kind of level the scale of all the hype and the excitement and the chaos that you're seeing in the news with chat GPT and everything. So now that I've made that disclaimer, um, I do think that there is a lot of opportunity for generative AI in medicine. And the part where I'm most excited, I think about is the way that we can decrease the physician administrative burden so that they're freed up to have more time to interact with their patients, which will definitely increase care. It will keep our clinicians staying at the bedside or in clinical practice because their joy has come back. And beyond that, then they'll have an, a more open schedule, which will increase access. And it will, I think it will just have a, a more positive experience for everyone. So um, as far as reducing the administrative burden, um, there's a couple of things that I think will be kind of low hanging fruit or like early implementations that can really make a difference. And at UCSD, we're already um, piloting one of them that I'm really excited to see how this goes as it scales more broadly. But um, as you probably know, physicians get an absurd amount of inbox messages from their patients and they're very important messages and they have lots of questions, but prior to the use of any implementation of AI, they had to respond to every single one with a full you know, email type situation. And being the caring uh, clinicians and physicians that they are, they took time to try to answer them fully. And that can just be a really hard thing to deal with when you've already finished your clinical practice for the day and you, you're just overwhelmed already. And then you come home and you have an inbox of hundreds of messages to return to. Um, so at UCSD, what we're doing is we're looking at how can the generative AI at least start the response? We're not sending anything out, obviously, without clinician oversight and review. And right now it's in a very small group of our most technically savvy physicians. But seeing the responses that the AI comes up with that are complete, they pull the information from the chart so the providers kind of has to, or the clinician has to just oversee it really quick and then sign off on it. Um, so far has been wonderful. And I think that can really make a huge impact on all the stress of the in-basket. And then another one is um, how generative AI can be used in ambient listening. So we haven't quite gone down this path yet, but we're definitely looking at it very closely. Um, and we would like to move on it soon. Having AI listen to your interaction with the patient and then documenting the note for you for review without you really having to do anything except for just review it at the end is, is great. I think that is going to be a huge um, both clinician and patient satisfier because the physician can turn and just chat with their patient. And then rather than having to turn back and forth between their computer and take notes and um, the ambient listening is similar to, you know, we've all kind of already experienced it, I think in, in Zoom with like tools such as Otter AI, where it just makes meeting notes for you. Same kind of idea, but with an extra layer of looking at the chart, reviewing the chart, making sure that the information is pulled in, and also all the extra security protocols that come on top of having health data in there. Um, I think that one will be pretty important. Um, and then also, you know, other things out there, such as um, providing medical imaging analysis, enabling diagnostic decision support, which that one could reduce incidences and delays of misdiagnosis. But there are so many cool things out there and I could just go on and on, but I think the biggest thing for me will be the reduce for um, just physician admin burden because my heart hurts for my physicians all the time um, when I see all the stuff that they have to do. And then finally, just, I think, again, to not be a Debbie Downer, but I think all of this is exciting and awesome, and I can't wait to get started on a lot of it. And I love sitting on our AI governance and hearing about all the different things that come down the path and talking about um, how we can implement them. But I'm, again, going to call out that all of this will only work if it's built on a foundation of trust and transparency. And I think that it's critical to continue to work on framework and standards for AI that build trust in technology in our profession as, as professions as informaticists and technologists and then the industry at large. So I'm excited, but also I like to caution people a little extra too.
Well, Brittany, let's now talk about your work in virtual care. I mean, uh, you were the virtual care technical manager at UC San Diego Health during the height of the pandemic, and the implementation of telehealth led to nearly all of the providers successfully uh, using that technology and serving uh, you know, their patients. And you and your uh, HIT leadership were evaluating, you know, the program constantly. And, you know, you've been working over the years and, you know, sharing best practices and optimizing workflow for providers for offering technical support to patients. And this rapid scaling of telehealth, you know, during the pandemic, you know, it was a great success story being able to connect, uh, you know, patients and providers uh, virtually. And, you know, that's not uncommon like everywhere else, of course. But, you know, during the pandemic, uh, the UC San Diego Health Information Services team under your leadership really responded, you know, to ensure that the providers and patients could easily access those telehealth services. And you and your team set up a command center to oversee the rapid scaling of uh, telehealth. And over just a few days, uh, the IS team at Internal Command Center ensured that telehealth technology could uh, quickly be scaled to provide over 1,200 telehealth visits a day. And during that time, as I understand, your team trained 600 providers and enabled video visits and over 300 in 90 departments and the scaling, you know, to 1200 visits a day when there's a thousand percent increase over the previous telehealth visit volume. So, you know, Brittany, the extent by which telehealth services were able to scale at UC San Diego Health, you know, during the pandemic, uh, you know, it's a great story. I'd love for you to share maybe some of your insights with our listeners about what it was like to lead virtual care deployment during that time. And what were some of the lessons learned uh, at you know, during that time that you could apply for the future. And also, you know, now that the, you know, for all intents and purposes, the pandemic is, is mostly subsided, you know, uh, have you seen uh, uh, patient demand for telehealth subside in lieu of more traditional face-to-face care, or is the, you know, health system simply in this transitional phase and this new area of telehealth adoption? Yeah. So it was quite the experience to, be in charge of virtual care um, during COVID. I definitely have to give it to my leadership. So my director of um, digital health, our CDO, our telehealth ops um, friends, there is no way we would have gotten through this without um, them. But I got to UC San Diego probably about four months prior to COVID hitting. And so I was I was brought in to kind of look at our virtual care program, expand it. You know, I was working out my plan of about, it was running about 18 months of how I was going to roll it out to all of our different clinics. And that 18 month ish plan became a three day plan one weekend in March. And I think the biggest thing that leveraged the success and were, and allowed us to see all of Um, the quick turnaround and the ability to serve our patients by the end of that weekend. I mean, we left on a Friday and everyone was virtual that next Monday, like almost all of our ambulatory visits. And, you know, thinking back on it, I'm like, how did we survive that time? It seems so chaotic, but the truth of it is, is that it was a very much an all hands on deck situation. And I'm, I'm really proud of the team because no one said anything like that's not my job we had senior directors answering the phone to ask answer like basic basic technical questions from physicians we had um other teammates just running ipads out to the clinics when they needed more of them no one said that's below me i'm not doing that everyone showed up ready to help ready to engage and to do anything they could possibly do to get this off the ground um so I think that's the biggest thing is when you work with a really good team, no matter what the problem that's facing you, you can, you can overcome anything. And that's why I go back to those, that ally discussion. It's really important about the people that you surround yourself with, because when chaos happens, you, you want those people with you. Another big thing that I kind of learned serving in that command center was that when you have all the right people to make the decisions in the room, you can do governance very quickly. Um, And, you know, a lot of times we work in health systems, there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of governance to get through. And so sometimes things 
roll slowly. But what that project um, showed me was that if you get everyone on board at the beginning, you actually can turn things around very quickly. And so that was really great because every once in a while, if I need to now, I can point back to that and say, look at how fast we made all these decisions about some pretty big impacts to care in a weekend. We can do that still. <laughs> um, and that helps a lot. And then one of the other things that I think is key to point out is when you're rolling something out big bang like that and you don't have a lot of lead up, you know, I would have been communicating a ton coming up to a project like this in the traditional sense. You know, we probably would have started communicating like three months prior about all the different training and how the different policies are going to be. And we didn't have the luxury of time for that. Um, so what became important was consistent, very clear training and tip sheets on absolutely everything because we weren't going to have the, the ability to staff out an at-the-elbow support for, model for pretty much anyone. Um, we weren't going to be able to sit through and let each provider practice a virtual care visit. Um, and so getting very clear on the training, making sure that we basically ran it all weekend so that they could pop in, pop out when they had a moment. And then that we had really clear tip sheets so that everyone could help themselves. Um, I think that made a huge impact and not just tip sheets on the technology. Um, virtual care is, you know, I'm very integrated in the technology and that's a lot of my life, but there's so many pieces of things like virtual care and anything in healthcare that also change and are really important. So we made sure we had very clear billing tip sheets and very clear policy tip sheets and very clear, this is how you consent a patient for a video visit worksheets. And so that was a really big deal. Then I think the second part of the question was, how's telehealth doing now? So we haven't seen it completely drop off. I would say we're probably hovering around 20% um, across our ambulatory world. And I think that's pretty par for the course. Some of the UCs have higher volumes in certain areas, um, but most of the health systems I've talked to, they've kind of sat around in that specific um, area. You definitely see it higher in, in certain service lines, ones that are maybe more easily given through telehealth. So things like psych visits, um, primary care quick check-ins that don't require a physical some follow-ups, those things we've seen um, at a much higher percentage level than ones that perhaps, you know, they really can't be done virtual care, but they were done during the COVID because we didn't have any other options. And so I think as we really drill down to what conditions or what interventions can be done via telehealth um, and being able to schedule those appropriately and consistently, then um, we can optimize the schedules for telehealth. And so uh, we definitely have seen that continue. But one thing that was interesting is we just had um, a hurricane watch hit Southern California last, I think it was last weekend. Yep. Last weekend. And um, we pivoted right back. So our ambulatory uh, team sent out a memo saying, Hey, on Monday, anyone that can needs to do all their visits virtual virtually. And so they sent all the physicians home that could go home and they ran all their clinics from home. And because of COVID, we knew exactly how to staff that right back up if we needed to. And so I think you'll see those fluctuations um, as we see different impacts to the care environment. Um, so you'll see things go up when maybe you have to go home for a hurricane or a snowstorm, or um, if we see like another disease come out um, and then you might see a little lull if there's not as much, but I don't think there's any chance that telehealth will go away. There's definitely the drive for it, particularly in you know, express care where no one wants to come in to tell you that, you know, you have a migraine that you've had before and you have your neurologist appointment in two weeks, but right now you just need to refill of whatever it is. That's not going to go away anytime soon. Well, Brittany, there's uh, something else I wanted to talk to you about and uh, technology adoption, and that's humility. Uh, you know, we have this new era of innovation and clinical informatics, AI, virtual care that you've talked about. Um, but you've also talked about in your thought leadership just how important humility is as a core virtue in technology adoption. And it's through that humility that we build this foundation for communication and collaboration. And this is a foundational premise that's um, 
antithetical almost to, you know, how medicine's been structured in our country. I mean, historically, you know, medicine's always celebrated the autonomy of physicians, which, you know, places that undue emphasis on the ego and, you know, that ethos of modern medical uh, education, you know, it was a uh, unintended consequence of the, you know, Flexner report that we probably all read about in grad school that came out in the 1900s. And, you know, that was a landmark report, you know, that really set medical education on a path towards the present day uh, medical profession that, and what was born out of that was this emphasis on analytic over synthetic thinking and an emphasis on strong and sometimes exclusionary professional identity and this emphasis on hierarchical structures. And in that structure, confidence is valued over humility, and physicians often find themselves in these uh, silos. And while autonomy is essential in clinic in many clinical situations, uh, it can inadvertently de-emphasize collaboration. And it seems like a lot is changing right now in value-based care because you know we're recognizing that these multidisciplinary patient-centered care models are really part of a overall movement to really transform medicine. And then your role as a clinical informaticist, you've worked with physicians and other other clinicians to co-create technology solutions and it requires them and you to forge this collaborative partnership that really values humility and by having humility and the vulnerability that goes with that you know you can take a step back and examine if the technology products are you know truly impacting meaningful change in in clinicians and patients lives so you know Brittany I'd love to get your you know, take on, you know, your approach to humility and in clinical informatics leadership and why this core value is so critical for the adoption of technology and medicine. Sure. So um, I recently wrote a chapter about this topic, as you probably know, um, that was just humility as a core value. And I got to write the chapter with three, I think, outstanding physicians, um, Dr. Art Duville, Felix Ankle and Brian Macbeth. Um, they all serve in different capacities as physicians, two emergency medical and one neurologist. And so I got to hear from their side all the things that you just talked about. Um, and then I had to respond to it um, as the technologist of the group. And so I'll kind of let your your listeners read uh, what they said more from the, the physician side, but it does align similar with some of the struggles that the, the technologists go through and how co coming at things with humility is really important. So similar to doctors, technologists typically have been self self or have been taught to attach self-worth to what they produce, what they earn and what they know. So if you're just in a strictly techno technological area, um, conversations are often around valuation of a new product or service, increasing your output, productivity and who's who of thought leadership dominating blogs posts and feeds um, and then in school when you're being trained to be a successful technologist you're often taught to pay attention to the hard quantifiable unambiguous and repeatable data and your so your success throughout schooling and in your early career often are built on certainty this is what I do this is what I know uh, this is what I produce however in healthcare, and as a technologist in healthcare, as you, I believe, as you move from an individual contributor role to more of a leadership role, you have to move from that certainty of I'm right, this is what I do, this is the right answer, um, and being praised for having the right answer, which is what we had all the way through school, to defining success um, as the application of judgment when there is no right answer, but only answers that work some better than others. And I think that humility and vulnerability in health tech asks you to take a step back um, and look at what you're creating and see, is this making a positive impact and change in, in my end users' lives, be it that those are clinicians or patients. Um, and that shift, I think, is really important because it admit, it requires you to admit to yourself and others that 
you don't have all the answers. And um, a term that I think is that I, you know, I hope they say after I, I'm gone, I hope that everyone says, oh, she was radically curious because that is, that's what I think um, kind of starts the humility conversation is getting radically curious about others and their barriers and their uses. Um, and coming to the core realization and the core understanding that these solutions are not meant to be the next splashy headline. If they are, that's great, but I want it to be um, because they impacted a bunch of lives or because they made a big difference in uh, clinicians' workflows. Um, you know, giving a physician an hour more back in the day or impacting a patient's quality of life by improving it 10%. These aren't huge things that I'm going to, we're going to get the big headlines um, on the New York Times from probably, but I think that it's important to look at how your role really makes a difference, even in those small incremental um, ways. So I think that's kind of, I, I look for humility on my team and I look for leaders that have humility. And that's not to say that, you know, we don't want to be first to do something or we don't want to work for the best healthcare system. But I think in order to bring technology to fruition in the most impactful way, you have to come to the table looking at how your tools are going to change other people's lives positively or negatively. And beyond just that, I think it's important when you get together and you're and you're implementing a new technology to call out that maybe you don't know all of the things. Like if a technologist was just to come into the OR and be like, okay, hold up, we're going to change this workflow because it's going to fit this new technology product and this technology is going to fix your life. They're going to look at that person. They'll probably just kick them out, honestly. Um, and so coming to the table, seeking to understand the other person's knowledge and where they're coming from and what their challenges are really will help drive a better implementation of a product than, um, than if you just come forcing your thoughts on everyone else. And I think, um, I don't know if it's in this chapter, it's in one of my other chapters, but one of the things that really came out of this discussion with the physicians on humility was how we can seek to understand each other best. And so we actually co-created a um, H&P for one of our iPhones. And so to be able to make sure we were speaking the same language. And so it was an exercise in humility because I was like, well, I don't really know what um, things go into a H&P really. And they were like, well, we don't really know how to troubleshoot an iPhone. And I was like, well, it's similar to troubleshooting a patient, I would imagine. And so we worked through it and it is in this chapter. So um, maybe I can share the link with your readers because I think it's really fun way to kind of break down those barriers and look at how, even though we have all these different terms um, from each other, we a lot of times we're thinking in the same context. So just coming with an open mind and getting radically curious, I think um, will really make health technology have a better impact. Well, I love that term, radical curiosity. I have to use that, Brittany. And, you know, that's really what it comes down to, you know, just this reimagine reimagination of of healthcare and, you know, being curious about how we can make it better. And it, it requires us to effectively manage change. And so, I, you know, as we wrap up our conversation today, I, I, I wanted to get your parting thoughts on change management. You know, if we look at technology adoption, you know, over the last, uh, you know, decade or more, I mean, certainly the biggest HIT disruption in American health healthcare, at least in our lifetime, was the adoption of uh, uh, electronic health records, which was brought about by the Meaningful Use Program that was established by the High Tech Act in 2009. And most of the physicians that I worked with at the time hated EHRs with a passion. I mean, they complained to me how disruptive it was on their workflow, how it made them into glorified data entry clerks. I mean, I even had one physician, you know, come to me uh, with the total number of clicks that were added to his workflow whenever uh, we implemented a new process. And, you know, you contrast that to the adoption of mobile devices, and it's so different. I mean, we're not seeing as much resistance to mobile devices as we saw with the addition of computers in the health space. And, and it, it makes sense. I mean, since mobile devices have, have become so ubiquitous, 
in our personal lives, and that lack of resistance will pave the way for for more use of mobile devices in hospitals and clinics. So it's just a, a really interesting anecdote on change management. And, you know, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what does this mean, you know, for the future of healthcare, you know, transformation, you know, since we, we look at so much more in terms of the enablement potential and, and, and technology, I mean, going beyond EHRs and telemedicine and RPM to things like AI and Internet of Things and 5G and 3D printing and robotics. I mean, how are uh, clinical informaticists and clinicians of the future, how should they approach effective change management in the years to come to really be successful in the long term? I think that while the technology implementations and use cases will be different and we have all this new, really interesting stuff coming out in the future, I think that, and I may eat my words later, but I truly think that the change management process will still stay similar. We might have, you know, less of a focus on a particular step. Um, I generally try to circle through um, Cotter's mod model of the eight steps anytime um, I'm going through a change management process. And as you know, people are excited about something, we might not have to create a sense of urgency as much around it, which is, you know, the step one. But um, I still think, you know, making that circle of each of the steps will really help move any change forward. So like, for example, building a guiding coalition is step two. And um, I think that's something particularly in AI that will be a really big deal. And you see my CDO, Dr. Chris Longhurst out there all the time, um, kind of, he's he does a lot of the um, strategic visioning and guiding coalition at the same time. He gets all the leaders on board. He gets everyone really excited. And I think we'll definitely need that around AI because we'll need that to sort of transform into the governance of all the new innovation. So I think that as there's excitement, you might not need all as much time on all the upfront steps, but you'll still want, like enlisting a volunteer army, you'll definitely want your super users in any technology that exists. There's really not a way around it. Um, you have to have those people that have a little bit more knowledge and that people can turn to if they have questions. You'll definitely want to focus on removing barriers. Um, you might not have as many barriers if people are very stoked about the new technology, but there will always be barriers when there's health tech involved. Um, you know, things like charging cables can sometimes derail a whole project or um, just different cycles of updates can really be a problem on mobile. So even if people are really excited, there are still barriers that you have to identify and remove. Um, and then the generating the short-term wins, I think that's something you're seeing with AI a lot right now is everyone's getting super excited and they there's all these possibilities, but for a long, a little while there and, and still a little bit, it feels like it's kind of all hypothetical. We're like, yeah, we could do this, we could do that. And generating the short-term wins, even if they're small. So for example, our um, my chart message response from the physicians with the use of AI, um, and then even though that's a small group and they're just doing it with a couple of different messages, it's been very successful. And so then splashing that out everywhere and showing people that there are short wins really helps the enthusiasm ball keep rolling. And I think that's, um, as a CI, that's always been an area that I take a focus on and I like to use to drive change is generating those short-term wins and then taking those generated wins and really making sure everybody knows about them. So recognizing the leaders that were involved in that short-term win on different tiered huddles that we have, or you know, putting them in newsletters so that everybody could be able to speak to that short-term win that we had um, is the big deal because then it can you can grow on that. So if as we roll out more and more AI products, people think back to, oh, that was really great that we did that small piece earlier. Let's focus on that. And that leads into like the sustained acceleration that. Um, as part of change management. But yeah, I think I don't think the foundation of change management will change much. It's just how we leverage it with the new technology that's coming out and knowing that different steps might be shorter um, based on just the the way the technology evolves. 
Well, Brittany, uh, thanks for sharing your insights on, on change management and everything else we talked about today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I learned a ton and I, I could tell your true calling is informatics and it's just been, you know, so great, uh, you know, again, getting to know you over these, uh, you know, last few years and, you know, uh, just one uh, last thing, you know, as our, uh, you know, listeners are learning along with me on, you know, the, the work that you're doing in clinical informatics. Um, how can they follow you on social media and, and maybe learn more about your work? Sure. So um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, my handle is BSPartridgeCIS, as in clinical informatics specialist. I don't know how long I'll continue on there, depending on how the landscape book goes, but um, I do post a lot there. I was actually recruited to my UCSD position off of Twitter. So I, as much as it's going through right now, I'm a big fan. And then I'm also um, on LinkedIn at BS Partridge, just search Brittany Partridge at UC San Diego Health. I'm the only one. I have a hot pink background, so you generally can't miss it. <laughs> Well, great. Well, uh, this has been such a, a great conversation. I hope we can stay in touch. 